Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. First, a big shout out to recent Patreon supporters. Thank you to Ruby Cullinan, Kai Savitvong, Gary Gaskett, Nicole Minka, Katrina Volney, Brendan James, Christian Pigden, Steve Shinners, Brendan Knight, Patrick Britton, Anne Moran, Phil Asker, Graham Hart, Brett Salter, Hayes L, and Mercedes Maguire. Thanks guys, your support means a lot and it helps make these episodes. Also, a big shout out to one of my earlier supporters, Simon Rankin, cheers, and I hope we can raise a beer in Melbourne soon. To hear how Patreon supporters helped make this episode, stick around at the end of the instalment. Supporters get all sorts of goodies, including bonus episodes, and the most recent one, out now, is called All Hail Megathon. It's the strange tale of the clanking, snorting, steam-driven beast that made the very first motorised Australian road trip, back in 1857. It was a lot of fun to research and to write, and I hope you enjoy it. On another note, I'm about to archive some older episodes of Forgotten Australia. These are The Battle for Rothbury, The Bombing of Rothbury, In the Execution of Their Duty, The Fugitive, Sydney's Red Year, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt, and The Human Glove Mystery. I'm going to archive these on the 27th of May, so if you've yet to listen to them, you've got a couple of weeks to download them. Okay, on with the show. It's Black Friday, the 13th of May, 1932, and Australia's sinking into the darkest days of the Great Depression. Unemployment is now at 31%. Every day, thousands upon thousands of men queue for day work. Sustenance rations barely put food on the table, and families are going hungry. Things are bad all over Australia, but they're at their worst in New South Wales. That's because Sydney and the rest of the state stand on the brink of political and social chaos. 
Labor Premier Jack Lang, known as the People's Champion, appears to be at war with pretty much everyone who's not working class, a moderate unionist, or a loyal party supporter. Lang's at war with the Conservative federal government, led by Prime Minister Joseph Lyons. He's at war with the Conservative state opposition, led by Bertram Stevens, and with the state governor, Sir Philip Game. He's at war with the big banks, with big business, and with the big newspapers. He's even at war with the communists and the socialisation units within his own party. But most visibly, Lang's at war with the extreme right-wing of politics in the form of the fascist New Guard. Two months ago, a member of this paramilitary outfit interrupted the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Far worse, a week ago, they bashed unionist Jock Garden, who's one of Lang's strongest supporters. Far, far worse even than that, just days ago, the new guard has been revealed to be plotting a coup d'etat to depose Lang and his government. Jack Lang is besieged on all sides, but the man is nothing if not a fighter. And this war, it has to be admitted, is one largely of his own choosing. Alone among the Australian state premiers, Lang is refusing to pay interest on New South Wales's British debts and he's refusing to slash wages and social payments. All of these measures have been ordered by the Commonwealth. But Lang says his first financial priority is to the working class, who are bearing the brunt of the depression. In March, Prime Minister Joe Lyons took aim at Lang with the Financial Agreements Enforcement Act. This gave the Feds the power to seize from New South Wales banks any funds held by the state government that were owed to the Commonwealth. Lang supporters called this the Grab Act, and he responded in dramatic fashion by ordering all government monies to be withdrawn from banks and held in the Treasury. That meant the Feds couldn't get its paws on over £1 million in cash. But even that much money hadn't been enough to keep New South Wales afloat. To ensure the state retained every possible penny, Lang next ordered public servants not to pay any state revenue into the banks. They were instead to deposit them in cash at the Treasury, where they'd be used for public service salaries and for social benefits. Now, in this second week of May, Lang has taken an even more drastic step. His mortgage taxation bill will charge all mortgage holders 10% of the total value of their asset. So, for example, if you've got £2,500 loaned out and secured by a property, you'll need to pay £250. And you'll need to pay it within 14 days, or risk having the securing asset seized by the state government. Lang's opponents say he's a robber, that this is a confiscation act, that this is the last desperate move of a deranged would-be communist dictator. Lang sees it as him giving the wealthy a taste of their own medicine. He reckons his bill will immediately raise £7 million, which he can use to pay the state's debts. Isn't that exactly what his conservative enemies have been demanding day after day? Well, if they're so patriotic, they can cough up out of their own coffers. The Premier is also going to use these funds to pay widows' endowments, which he says he's been unable to meet because of the Commonwealth cutting off monies. The mortgage taxation bill is a shotgun fired at the Conservatives. Yet, the thing with such blasts is that they can often kill and injure bystanders. And that's what Lang's opponents say it's going to do. Make paupers out of thousands and thousands of small working class and middle class investors. These are the very people Lang says he's risking everything to help. Beyond that, his enemies say he's about to destroy New South Wales completely 
and, as it's the leading state in the nation, wreak even greater economic havoc on all of Australia. But Premier Jack Lang is a popular man with a commanding electoral majority. So, by 12 minutes past six on this Black Friday morning, after an all-night session, his mortgage taxation bill has been passed by both the New South Wales Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council. Now, it awaits Sir Philip Game's signature. Once the governor signs, it'll be law. The next move belongs to the forces arrayed against Jack Lang. Yet, their move has already been made. Not by Prime Minister Joe Lyons, not by opposition leader Bertram Stevens, and not by Governor Sir Philip Game. It's been made two days ago by a man named Robert Henry Beardsmore. This Great War veteran has for decades been a leading member of the National Rifle Association and one of Australia's best sharpshooters. He's also been a public servant for more than 40 years. And it's in this capacity, by the morning of Black Friday, 1932, that Robert Beardsmore has already taken his shot at Jack Lang, using ammunition handed to him by the Premier himself. Before the day's out, Beardsmore and the rest of Australia will see that he scored another bullseye. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of a two-part Forgotten Australia episode. In part one, the first dismissal, Jack Lang's last days, we're going to hear about the lead-up to what happened 90 years ago today. The dismissal was an event unprecedented in Australian history. The sacking of a popularly elected state premier by a governor acting on behalf of the King of England. While the dismissal of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam in 1975 has seared itself into popular memory, the ousting of Jack Lang has in the course of nearly a century become far more obscure. And much, much more obscure is the role of Robert Beardsmore. While he pops up here and there in part one, we'll hear his story in full in part two, the first dismissal, the public servant who brought down the Premier. Robert Beardsmore does rate passing mention in some accounts of Jack Lang's dismissal, but his background and his potential motivations are usually not part of the picture. The only work I've found that does feature him in more than a sentence or two is Gerald Stone's 1932, A Hell of a Year. In this highly entertaining book, the late Mr. Stone described Beardsmore as a First World War sniper who, tamed by his years in the public service, was only looking forward to retiring when the 1932 crisis threatened New South Wales. Mr. Stone characterised Beardsmore as a bored public servant who didn't see it as his place to debate the rights and wrongs of any battle between Lang and the Commonwealth Government, much less to take sides. He simply did his duty. But there's much, much more to Beardsmore's story. As it turns out, from 1900 to 1932, he was a bit like the Forrest Gump of Australian history. Where he appeared, what he did, and for who, makes me think it's very, very unlikely that Beardsmore was neutral in 1932. It makes me think that this forgotten figure, if not actually a member of the New Guard, was at least in complete sympathy with the organisation's bitter opposition to Jack Lang. In this episode, I'll be looking at the admirable and the less admirable qualities of Lang and Beardsmore. In particular, they both shared racist attitudes that were part of their work. What Lang and Beardsmore said and thought, when Australia was dominated by the White Australia policy and a belief that First Nations people were inferior and doomed to extinction, wasn't controversial back then. 
Back then, it was considered sensible, patriotic, economically, scientifically, and morally sound. So, while this episode doesn't contain offensive words, it does contain some offensive material. As a person and as a politician, Jack Lang was an incredibly complex and somewhat inscrutable figure who came to grief in extremely complicated economic and constitutional circumstances. Any one of these angles would be enough to fill a book. What I've set out to do in this instalment is to give us a sense of Lang, his attitudes and actions, supporters and enemies. These serve also to help us understand how he compared with what we'll hear in the second instalment of his forgotten nemesis, Robert Beardsmore. Jack Lang was born John Thomas Lang four days before Christmas in 1876. He came into the world smack bang in the middle of Sydney. His family lived in the Brickfield Hill part of George Street, which, if you can picture it, is where a McDonald's now stands opposite the big event cinemas complex. Jack's father was a Scottish watchmaker and jeweller, and his mother an Irish milliner. Jack was the sixth of ten kids, and the family did it tough. His father moved his shops around a lot and they wound up living in slum housing in Surrey Hills. Things weren't helped when Jack's dad developed a chronic illness. To help put food on the table, Jack sold newspapers, roaming from Market Street right down to Circular Quay. When he was around nine, his family sent him to live with an uncle in Gippsland in Victoria. He spent about four years there and attended a Catholic school. During this time, he discovered what he called his rebel streak when he argued with a priest and copped a caning. At the age of 13, Jack came back to Sydney and got his first job in a bookshop. Its owner would later say the boy had an insatiable curiosity and desire to learn. Jack next worked in the rural western suburbs, labouring on a chicken farm and driving a horse-drawn omnibus. A couple of years later, he was back in Sydney and working as a clerk for an accountant. In early 1893, numerous Australian banks failed due to their profligate lending practices during the land boom that had just gone bust. This economic crisis spawned a depression. Jack, who'd lived in the slums amid city working class people and who'd worked with farmers in rural suburbs, now got to see an already ground down population suffer as their meagre properties and possessions were repossessed. Jack became interested in politics and he joined the ALP. Billy Hughes was then his local member. The focus of Lang's political interest was McNamara's socialist bookshop in Castlereagh Street. In Lang's book, I Remember, one of his three hefty memoirs, ghostwritten long after the fact through rosish coloured glasses, he said of McNamara's, quote, There flocked the poets and philosophers of Sydney Town, the idealists and materialists, the republicans and the anarchists, the atheists and the parsons. They browsed and they argued, they planned and they plotted. To me, it was all very exciting. Although only a youngster, I had the political bug badly. McNamara's also played a big role in Lang's personal life. The bookshop was run by Bertha Brett, a socialist and fighter for women's suffrage who's described as the mother of the Australian labour movement. Young Jack married Hildebrett, one of Bertha's three daughters, in March of 1896. Another of Bertha's daughters, also named Bertha, married Henry Lawson the following month. Decades later, in I Remember, Lang recalled, quote, Lawson, quiet, soft-spoken and slightly deaf, did a lot of thinking, as well as a bit of drinking. The wildest revolutionary of them all was the most aggressive Australian. No one placed their allegiance to any country before their allegiance to Australia. 
Lawson often told me that we would one day have to fight against invaders. When that happened, it would be the men from the bush who would save Australia. Like most of the bookshop fraternity, he put Australia first. He was a crusader at heart. While Lang's memoirs contain much about Lawson and absolute reams about the Labour Party, his own early professional and personal life are barely mentioned. Partly because they didn't fit the image he'd built as a crusader. Also because of a scandal. In 1899, Lang became the manager of a real estate agency in Auburn. But he was soon sick of working for the man and, in November 1901, with a partner, set up a competing property business called Lang and Doors. Lang became wealthy and prominent selling homes and land, holding auctions and collecting rent. Via his business, he did help poor people get into affordable housing and he was also active in local labour politics and progressive associations. But of course, being a successful rent collector who owned a car and a house when many had neither opened him up in future to criticism that he was the Auburn Plute, that is, the Auburn Plutocrat who was posing as a man of the people. Jack stood six foot four, weighed about 16 stone and dressed well in three-piece suits. He had a jutting chin, a receding hairline and a trademark black moustache. In future, he'd be nicknamed the Big Fella, and he was imposing in every way, particularly in his speech. Working as an auctioneer had made him into a powerful, if rough-and-ready, orator. Lang was elected as an Auburn alderman in 1907, and he'd served for seven years, including two stints as mayor. Jack and Hilda's marriage would endure for nearly 70 years, but it had to survive a terrible early betrayal. This was Jack's intense affair with a woman named Nellie Anderson. By 1908... When Jack and Hilda had four children, he was living with his mistress in Burwood. Despite Hilda threatening divorce, she didn't go through with it. Jack and Nellie even had a son, named Chris, in 1910. Their affair only ended when Nellie died at the age of 28 the following year. After that, Jack returned to Hilda, and she even accepted Chris into the family as her own son. In 1912, Jack and his wife had another child, bringing their brood to six. Obviously, if Lang's illicit relationship with Nellie had been publicly known, it would have killed his political career in the cradle. And even if it had been exposed later, when he'd risen to power, it might very well have proved fatal. But his adultery was never made public. At this time, the Langs lived in a stately home at 102 Adderley Street in Auburn. This was four miles due west of where Robert Beardsmore then lived with his family at 55 Albert Street, Strathfield which was then one of Sydney's most prestigious neighbourhoods. Though there's nothing to suggest they knew each other, it seems certain that Beardsmore, by then a veteran public servant and long-standing member of the military, would have at least been familiar with J.T. Lang, the Auburn politician and mayor and successful real estate agent. Beardsmore certainly would have known of him after Lang was elected to state parliament in 1913 and became part of the Labour government led by William Holman. The next year, Australia was at war. As we'll hear in the next episode, Robert Beardsmore was among the first to volunteer for active service and among the first to fight. While patriotism ran high, by June 1915, with recruitment numbers falling, conscription was proposed as the solution. But the idea of drafting Australians to fight in the Dardanelles and in France split the nation, and it split Labour. Labor Prime Minister Billy Hughes put the conscription question to Australians in two referendums in 1916. 
Jack Lang was firmly in the no camp. He wasn't against the war or Australia's national defence, but argued that Prime Minister Hughes had been against conscription before his recent visit to England. Now, he was just doing Britain's bidding. Introduce conscription, Lang argued, and it would forever remain. But the biggest reason for Lang's opposition was rooted in Labour's long-standing white Australia policy. Chapter 13 of his memoir, I Remember, is actually titled White Australia Policy, KO'd Conscription. In Auburn in 1916, in the pouring rain, Lang spoke to an audience of some 3,000 people. The gist of his argument was that if 100,000 white men were conscripted and sent to the front, who'd replace them in the factories, on the sheep and cattle stations, and in the sugarcane fields? It'd be an influx of cheap coloured labour, and that would irreversibly undermine white Australia. Further, how would diggers hunkered down in their trenches in France feel about this betrayal? Lang said he got such a good response to this speech that he realised immediately it was the key to defeating conscription. From his book, quote, As the campaign proceeded, we had the breaks. Vote no and keep Australia white became the recognised slogan of the campaign. When New South Wales's Deputy Labour leader, Jim Dooley, asked Lang to take the stage first in Dubbo, the lights went up and Lang found that half of the audience were Aboriginal people. From his book, quote, Jim Dooley sat behind me beaming, waiting for me to expound the policy of white Australia to the descendants of the original settlers. Lang's memoirs don't record what he said. Conscription was defeated at both referendums. Billy Hughes was expelled from the Labour Party and, with his followers, formed the National Labour Party, which continued in power as a minority government with the support of the Commonwealth Liberal Party. In early 1917, National Labour and Commonwealth Liberal merged into the Nationalist Party. The same scenario played out in New South Wales. Premier William Holman, who supported the yes vote, was also expelled from the Labour Party, and he retained government with the support of the Liberal Reform Party. These two forces then merged to become the New South Wales branch of the Nationalists, who won power in the 1917 elections. Lang kept his seat, but Labour was out of government. They bounced back in 1920, and Lang got his first cabinet position as Treasurer under Premier Jim Dooley. Thanks to Lang's accountancy and business experience, he was described by Sir John French of the Bank of New South Wales as one of the best to ever hold the Treasury portfolio. By 1922, though, the Nationalists had regained power. The following year, Lang became leader of the opposition, having skillfully navigated a moderate path between various union factions. One group Lang had no truck with were the Communists. He said they'd infiltrated Labour, and he wanted them out, so Lang banned Reds from the party. This included expelling the radical union leader, Jock Garden. But Lang's opposition to communism was again in part predicated on white Australia. As quoted in the Australian Worker newspaper in March of 1924, he said, quote, I now propose to show what the communists mean when they talk about industrial unity and how their policy would affect trade unionists and other good Australians who believe fervently in a white Australia. If there is one question more than any other on which saying unionists are unanimous, it is on the maintenance of a white Australia. This has been amply demonstrated for the past 30 years by the party's fights for racial purity and a high standard of comfort. Lang went on, quote, 
Now, what is the attitude of the Communist Party on this vital and far-reaching question? They nakedly and insolently claim that all coloured races should be admitted to Australia and treated as brothers and equals. To the Communist, racial purity and a high sense of social service mean nothing. All that matters is a black, brown and brindle phalanx marching under the false banner of a united front. Communists maintain that so long as the Japanese iron worker, the Chinese carpenter and the Kanaka farm labourer can be persuaded to join a communist trade union, they should be welcomed as fitting matrimonial partners for Australian girls and the worthy parents of the coming Australian race. I bring this up because I think it's relevant and forgotten, but also to show that Robert Beardsmore's attitudes weren't in isolation. For the record, Lang would hold these views 40 years later, with chapter 6 of his I Remember memoir titled White Australia Saved Australia. While the Australian Worker was the newspaper of the Australian Workers' Union, with whom Lang had a tumultuous relationship, from 1924 he could at least count on the support of the Labour Daily. That was because he was the co-founder and director of this newspaper. But Lang needed a mouthpiece because the main Metro Dailies, we're talking the Sydney Morning Herald, the Daily Telegraph, the Sun, Evening News and the Daily Guardian, were increasingly hostile to him. But in May 1925, despite all their flack, he won the election and became Premier and Treasurer. While it's jarring to hear how openly racist Lang was back in 1925, it's also jarring to learn that the reforms he introduced, sensible to us today, were then considered radical, if not revolutionary. Lang introduced a widow's pension of one pound per week. In 1925, in the wake of the Great War, New South Wales had thousands upon thousands of widows. Many, if not most, had children. Lang provided five shillings per week family endowment for every child under 14. He made employers provide workers' compensation for their men and women. Lang also restored the 44-hour week that had been done away with by the nationalists. He also restored the jobs of railway men who'd been sacked after the 1917 strike. Among their number was future Prime Minister Ben Chifley. Despite these compassionate policies, on a personal level, Lang was supposedly without a friend in the world. As his biographer Bede Nan put it in his 1983 essay for the Australian Dictionary of Biography, quote, He remained a loner and a hater. Maybe so, but Jock Garden had certainly come around to Lang, saying he was greater than Lenin. Given Lang was trying to distance himself from the communists, this wasn't a particularly helpful compliment. But Jock Garden meant it. Inspired by Lang, he resigned the Communist Party and applied to rejoin Labour. It'd take some time before he was forgiven and readmitted. In the meantime, Lang wanted to abolish the Legislative Council. Members were then appointed by the Governor for life. It was, Lang said, the most exclusive club in the city. To do away with the Council, Lang needed to stack its membership with enough Labour loyalists who then voted out of existence. The state governor, Sir Dudley LeChair, was supposed to assent to a premier's reasonable request to increase council membership. In December 1925, the governor appointed 25 new Labour members. But in February the following year, when it came time to vote, enough of these men turned traitor or abstained, with the result that the council survived. Despite this setback, other Labour internal disputes actually helped Lang consolidate his power. 
This in turn fed his enemies' claims that he was a dictator. Lang was dubbed, despite his opposition to the communists, as the Red Terror. Lang lost the October 1927 election and the nationalists were back in power, led by Premier Thomas Bavin. In October 1929, Labor's James Scullin became Prime Minister, just before Wall Street crashed and the Great Depression began. As we heard in the Rothbury episodes, one of Scullin's major promises had been to break the power of the coal barons on the New South Wales coal fields. These capitalist bigwigs had tried to force miners to take a 12.5% wage cut, even though these unionists were all working under a federal award that had a year left to run. When the miners refused, they were locked out of their workplaces. But once James Scullin was in power as Prime Minister, all his talk of taking on the coal barons dried up. The New South Wales government, meanwhile, decided to bring in scab labour to work the mines. As New South Wales opposition leader, Lang said that Scullin should bring in the army to reopen the mines so that union men could go back to work. Remember, the miners weren't on strike. They were just being prevented from working. The New South Wales government's point man in reopening Rothbury was the widely hated New South Wales Secretary for Mines and Minister for Forests, Reginald Weaver. He'd already spent much of the year taking on locked-out timber workers, using basher gangs to intimidate unionists. Reginald Weaver was fond of saying things like, We've got to take this metal of socialism in our hands and crush it to death. Up in the Hunter Valley in November and December 1929, Reginald Weaver gave a series of speeches that deliberately stirred up the locked-out men. He vowed to open Rothbury with scab labour no matter what. During this period, Weaver and a Lands Department public servant, yep, Robert Beardsmore, established a camp inside Rothbury for the soon-to-arrive scab workers and the police who'd be sent up to protect them. There was some controversy over Beardsmore's role, and we'll hear more about this in the next instalment. Rothbury went from standoff to tragedy on the 16th of December 1929 when 5,000 miners marched on the mine and were met with gunfire from the police. One teenage protester, Norman Brown, was killed and at least eight other men were seriously wounded. In Parliament the next day, Lang moved this, quote, that this house deplores the loss of life which occurred at Rothbury yesterday and censures the government for permitting the use of state police to further the efforts of mine owners in their attitude of open defiance of the law. In his memoir, The Great Bust, Lang said that the debate that followed was one of the most emotional of his career. Quote, I blamed the firebrand utterances of Weaver and the callous determination of Bavin to find trouble. Who gave the orders? Where was Weaver? Who told them to disregard tact and use bullets? Lang would soon urge the federal government to seize the mines. That, of course, didn't happen. But Reginald Weaver would be known in labour circles thereafter as the Raja of Rothbury. With union unrest continuing on New South Wales coalfields, the Baffin government used rising star police inspector Billy Mackay to marshal basher gangs of constables who tried to beat miners into submission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With Australia slipping ever deeper into the economic quagmire, in July 1930, Sir Otto Niemeyer of the Bank of England came down under to set us straight. What we needed to do, he said, was cut spending, slash wages, and ensure that we prioritised paying interest on our loans to Britain. Jack Lang had something to say about this. In October 1930, while campaigning in the state election, he told 100,000 people in the domain, quote, Australians have earned the reputation of being a nation of fighters. In this election, the whole of Australian idealism is being challenged by Sir Otto Niemeyer and the London financial interests. Are our people going to fight or throw up our hands at the first serious challenge? We have never run away from a fight yet, and on Saturday next, we will show that our determination and courage are as strong as we believe them to be. Lang's policies included increasing spending on public works to put people back in jobs, reversing salary cuts for public servants, and restoring the 44-hour week, which the Nationalists had again done away with. At this point, Lang, at least publicly, was not about repudiating loan repayments to London. But he was, according to Smith's Weekly, a total hypocrite for continuing in his real estate business. On the 18th of October, they ran a full-page attack piece headlined, Land Agent J.T. Lang evicts an out-of-work man. Big-jawed public humbug swings axe to help mortgagee. Lang was, the paper said, a tool of the landlords. As noted by historian Peter Spirit, the rest of the papers didn't follow this line of attack. Condemning Lang for that would be to condemn the capitalist and investor class as a whole for doing the same. Going after Lang as a capitalist hardly jibed with their contention that he was a communist. Despite the intense press hostility, Lang won his second term as Premier in a landslide. Lang used his mandate to institute more reforms. It's not known whether it was in any way related to the Smith's Weekly piece, but one of these was an anti-eviction law. He also passed a moratorium act that would extend the time for people who were struggling to pay their home loans. To raise revenue, he introduced a state lottery. A 10% tax was imposed on winning bets, and he increased the unemployment tax on wages and salaries from three pence to one shilling in the pound. Lang asked for help from the banks, but was denied any loans because he'd left the Federal Loans Council, through which all monies had to be accessed. With funds limited, in March 1931, Lang said that New South Wales would not pay loan interest due to London on the 1st of April. This revenue, he said, would instead go to dole payments, where it was needed most. Not paying debts due to Mother England risked shame to Australia. Prime Minister James Scullin paid what was due and added the bill to New South Wales's tab. In June of 1931, the state leaders met in Melbourne. With Lang's agreement, they adopted what would become known as the Premier's Plan. This followed Sir Otto Nehemiah's advice, cutting wages and pensions and endorsing loan repayments to London. But Lang made a proposal to better share the burden around, and this was that the salaries of public servants shouldn't exceed £500. Given ordinary workers were making huge sacrifices, this hardly seemed unreasonable. Most men, 
if they were lucky enough to be in work, were earning less than a quarter of that amount. At this point, Robert Beardsmore, for instance, had been a public servant for 40 years. He was now with the Lands Department on a salary of £850. What he felt about Lang's proposal can only be guessed, but the Sydney Morning Herald was outraged. It blasted Lang's claim, nobody worth more than £500 a year, as propaganda that was the political equivalent of poison gas or germ warfare. Quote, it is intended to sharpen the already raw edge of class consciousness to a razor keenness. It is Mr. Lang at his worst. Of course, rabid anti-Langism in the newspapers had been doing exactly that for years now. The Sydney Morning Herald went on, quote, Are we to be driven to absolute desperation by his exactions and threatenings before the governor dismisses him and his ministers and gives the electors a chance of dealing with him? Those voters, of course, had had their say in October of 1930, and they'd given Lang 55% of the vote and 55 seats, to Thomas Bavin's 40% and 35 seats. By now, New South Wales had a new governor, Air Vice Marshal Sir Philip Game, who, like his predecessors, was drawn from the English upper class. Sir Philip Game was a gentleman fair-minded and deeply reluctant to interfere in New South Wales politics despite increasing calls for him to dismiss Jack Lang. The relationship between the Premier and the Governor was polite but also tense. A major source of this discord was Lang wanting as many as 80 new members of the Legislative Council so he could have them abolish the Chamber and rubber stamp any legislation he wanted to get through. Sir Philip Game refused this request, but he was to agree to 25 additional members. With the depression deepening, Lang said he kept in tune with the people by talking to voters in Auburn. In his memoir, The Turbulent Years, he wrote, quote, They would stay and have a bit of a yarn and tell me how they thought things were going. To me, they were the pulse of the people, and quite often the decisions I made as Premier were influenced by the views they expressed to me in my office. Lang went on, quote, it kept me in touch with the suffering and misery of what was happening to ordinary people in their homes, the grim battle for survival. So, when the experts talked about equality of sacrifices, I had a good idea of what was involved for the ordinary people. To be fair, Jack Lang didn't have a monopoly on sympathy for those who were suffering. Sir Philip Game was also said to be very much sympathetic to the struggles of the down and outs. In the 1968 book Dismissal of a Premier by Bethia Foote, who had a close-up view of events in the 1930s as daughter of the governor's private secretary, Sir Philip Game is described as often going to the domain to talk with people living and sleeping rough. He'd help them out with food from government house and a little money from his own pocket. That was nice, but state revenues were getting ever tighter, and he had no control over that. In early August 1931, public service salaries went unpaid. Jack Lang was forced to rejoin the Loan Council and access half a million pounds to make ends meet. But the state's budget deficit and its indebtedness grew and grew. Despite having Jock Garden now as his fierce ally, Lang faced opposition from the Communists and from socialisation units within the Labour Party. They thought he wasn't going nearly far enough to help the working class. But on the other side of politics, Lang had a new enemy in the New Guard. Led by Great War veteran Eric Campbell, this secretive fascist paramilitary organization's leadership was drawn from ex-officers of the AIF. 
Its rank-and-file membership comprised mainly former soldiers and middle-class Sydney-siders, most from the North Shore. The New Guard's number one enemy was Jack Lang, whose actions they believed would lead to a communist takeover of New South Wales. When that happened, and they were sure it was going to, the New Guard would be ready, organised and well-armed, and they'd take the state back under their control until democracy could be restored. In late 1931, the New Guard went on the offensive. Senior fascist Francis de Groot organised his men to attack Communist Party meetings and to harass Labour Party campaigners in the federal election. Jack Lang was to rely on, of all people, Billy Mackay and his police to keep the fascists in check. They didn't appear to bash them as they had the miners in the Hunter Valley. Using batons on former AIF officers and on nice accountants and real estate agents from Mossman and Kirribilli wasn't really on. Instead, Mackay tried to intimidate them with shows of strength, including a massive police march through the city, and he also used undercover agents to infiltrate the movement and to gain intelligence. In November 1931, Lang renounced the Premier's plan. His replacement, the Lang Plan, as it became known, comprised three remedies to cure Australia's economic ills. One, stop paying interest to British bondholders. Two, reduce interest rates to 3% on domestic borrowing. And three, abandon the gold standard for a good standard. Additionally, Lang now refused to reduce wages, pensions and social benefits. At the federal level, Lang played a huge role in reshaping Australian politics. Five federal ALP members who supported Lang pressed Prime Minister James Scullin to adopt the new plan. Scullin refused and they moved to the crossbenches. Now, the Labor Prime Minister led a minority government that depended on their support and on Lang. On the other side of the chamber, the Nationalists, Australian Party and a few Labor renegades had merged into the United Australia Party. They were led by former ALP man Joseph Lyons. He'd been Premier of Tasmania and a member of Scullin's cabinet until he'd resigned in protest at the Labor government's response to the Depression. When the United Australia Party held a no-confidence vote in the Scullin government, Lang's five crossbench supporters joined them. In the subsequent federal election in December 1931, Labor was thoroughly trounced and Lyons became Prime Minister. Labor wouldn't be in power federally again for a decade. This wasn't all down to Jack Lang, but he did play a major role in these events. Lang's persona and policy saw the big fella acclaimed at huge rallies where the crowd chanted, Lang is right, about the Lang plan. Plaster busts of the great man were sold, and they were inscribed with J.T. Lang, the people's champion. All of this made the new guard hate him even more intensely. Its membership had soared. Campbell also spoke at big rallies, including one at the Sydney Town Hall, where the audience was estimated at 3,000. While these events were members only, Campbell's rants were broadcast on radio. He told his followers that the New Guard had a five-month plan at the end of which all communists would be expelled from Australia. He spoke darkly of the armed struggle ahead and exhorted his men to be ready. As for how many New Guard members there were, estimates varied wildly. Campbell would claim 100,000. Most likely it was about half that, though this was still far in excess of the number of police in New South Wales. If push came to shove, things might get very ugly. 
As a counter, leftists also started organising into the Labour Army. When trouble started, they'd do their best against the new guard. In March 1932, Prime Minister Lyons' government passed the Financial Agreements Enforcement Act. This gave the Feds the power to remove from New South Wales banks all revenue due to the Commonwealth Government. In response, Lang ordered that all cash, well over £1 million, be withdrawn from the banks and be held in the Treasury. It was quite the stunt. So was locking the doors to the Taxation Department headquarters so that the Feds couldn't access any monies held there or any documents. On the 19th of March, the New Guard staged its most public of stunts. While Eric Campbell had planned to use the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge to somehow arrest Jack Lang for corruption, his underling, Francis de Groot, had what he thought was a better plan. To embarrass Lang, he'd cut the ribbon, which of course was what he did. De Groot was hauled from his horse by Billy Mackay and taken for psychiatric assessment before being put on trial, leading to conflict between masses of police and new guardsmen outside the court. On the 12th of April, in a bid to staunch the flow of its meagre funds to the Feds, Lang's government sent a circular instructing all public servants to pay any revenues due to the state directly into the Treasury. Such a measure, Sir Philip Game believed, might be in contravention of the Commonwealth law. Quite reasonably, he asked Jack Lang to establish that this was legal. Sir Philip Game also sent a secret telegram to London on the 23rd of April. In this communique, he mentioned the pressure on him to sack Lang and why he thought it would be the wrong thing for him to do. Sir Philip Game was asking the Secretary of State and the Dominion's office for advice on the situation. What should he do? It'd be more than two weeks before an answer began to be drafted by the Dominion's office, and this wouldn't be sent because by the time it was finalised, it was too late. But what London was going to advise was that Sir Philip Game seek advice from constitutional advisers. If they believed the government was committing acts that were illegal, this could be established by the courts and the government told to desist. And if the government persisted, then Sir Philip Game would have to reconsider his position. As historian John Manning Ward wrote in the book Jack Lang, quote, Had Game received the advice being prepared for him in London, he would have seen that the Secretary of State expected him to let the matter of suggested illegality be tested by judges in the courts rather than by the privately expressed opinions of the Chief Justice or any other eminent lawyer. Had London got off its ass and responded sooner, history might have been very different. As it was, Sir Philip Game was left hanging as the situation in New South Wales got worse and worse. On the morning of the 6th of May, Sydney woke up to the news that Jock Garden, union leader and Jack Lang's fiercest supporter, had been savagely beaten by eight men in his home. Seven of these bully boys had fled, but one culprit hadn't escaped, and after his arrest, he dobbed in his co-conspirators. They were all, he revealed, members of the Fascist Legion, a deranged inner circle of the new guard who wore black Ku Klux Klan-style hooded robes. Until the bashing of Jock Garden, the new guard had a measure of public support, but now they'd been exposed as dangerous enemies of the state who were willing to stage a cowardly nighttime attack on a man in his own home. In the wake of this outrage, the new guard's headquarters were raided and caches of documents were discovered. These included plans of army bases and ammunition depots and showed a plot to take over state infrastructure. 
they also illustrated how new guardsmen had been carrying out surveillance on Jack Lang. It was believed they'd been planning to kidnap him and other Labor cabinet ministers and union leaders and detain them in the old Berrima jail. In other words, a straight-out coup d'etat. Eric Campbell denied authorising the bashing of Jock Garden and said the documents must have been planted. But he didn't deny that Jack Lang had to go. Reginald Weaver, the Rajah of Rothbury, was now the deputy opposition leader and he came to the defence of the new guard. He said that the bashing had been orchestrated by an agent provocateur and such infiltrators had also placed the files for cops to find as a plot to discredit the new guard. This was raised in federal parliament with Lang supporter Jack Beasley accusing the Defence Department of conspiring with the new guard. Prime Minister Lyons denied any such link but promised a royal commission into the organisation. In New South Wales, Lang also announced there'd be a royal commission into the new guard, and this would include Weaver's claims of a frame-up. All of this happened between the 6th and the 11th of May. Immediately before and during this period, in quick succession, the federal government undertook measures that turned up the financial heat on Jack Lang. It introduced a bill to let the Commonwealth seize most of the revenue from New South Wales railways, leaving them with only enough to pay wages and run services. On the 6th of May, the Commonwealth Government Gazette instructed that any monies from the sales, lease, disposal, etc. of any Crown or State land in New South Wales must not be paid into the State Treasury, but into the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. The full bench of the High Court ruled that the Commonwealth was legally entitled to New South Wales revenue. It ruled that Premier Lang's government was in default to the Commonwealth to the tune of a little over £2 million. On the 10th of May, a Sydney bank handed £50,000 of state government money to the Commonwealth. The same day, the federal government said that from the following day, all state taxes would go directly to the Commonwealth Bank. This meant everything, from death duties to motor vehicle licences. It was a move that would leave New South Wales penniless and powerless. In response, that same day, Lang's government reaffirmed its Treasury Circular of the 12th of April. Mr C. H. Hay, Under Secretary of the Premier's Department, under direction from Lang, sent a memo to all government departments. Subject. Collection and expenditure. Procedure to be followed. Reference. Treasury Circular Letter of 12th of April 1932. This was the circular Sir Philip Game had sought London's advice on, and he was still waiting to hear back from them. This new memo confirmed that the Cabinet had considered the matter yesterday and approved the following decision. Now came a strange preamble. Quote, that is forced labour without payment by the authority who would use such forced labour, or in other words slavery, has been abolished in the British Empire for over 100 years, and as the first charge on revenue in every civilised community is the payment of those who collect revenue for the government, it is the decision of the Cabinet... After this, which sounded like the sort of thing Lang would say in the domain, the new circular confirmed what the previous one had ordered. That memo's directives were that under no circumstances were monies collected to be paid into a bank. If possible, money was to be received in cash. If a cheque had to be accepted, it had to be made out in cash. No other cheques would be received. All of these monies were to be delivered to the Treasury directly or to the heads of government departments. Quote, 
banks must not be used for this purpose but sage and suitable arrangements should be made for forwarding cash and cheques to the Treasury. The memo included advice on how best to do this using the railways, which presumably would still be functioning. The circular concluded, quote, Immediate action in this connection is necessary. The circular was a desperate attempt to keep money in the state. The next day came an even more desperate measure to inject funds into the Treasury. This was when Lang announced his mortgage taxation bill. As we heard at the start of this instalment, this tax would charge 10% on every mortgage in the state, and it would be payable in two weeks. Those who didn't pay would be liable to have their assets seized by the state. There was absolute outrage at this bill, which was to go before the New South Wales Parliament on the 12th of May. Lang was called a robber who was confiscating assets like the Red Terror he was. All the newspapers ran example after example of poor people whose only income was the rent or interest they got from the small mortgages they held. Big national insurance companies who held mortgages worth millions in New South Wales would risk bankruptcy. The mortgage taxation bill really didn't actually seem workable, particularly in its sudden and draconian enforcement. Regardless, Lang had the numbers in the Legislative Assembly to get it through, and maybe now in the Council too. In Canberra, Federal Parliament had voted not to go into recess so that Joe Lyons could rush through the Financial Emergency Bill. This was meant to counter any Mortgage Taxation Act that might be passed in New South Wales. This was where things stood on Wednesday the 11th of May 1932. Lang had a parliamentary majority and commanded huge popular support. The newspapers were speculating he'd be dismissed over the Mortgage Taxation Bill. Sir Philip Game was still waiting on advice from London. The new guard was wounded but not out and getting political cover from the fascist-adjacent New South Wales Deputy Opposition Leader Reginald Weaver. On the 11th of May 1932, the conflict between the state and federal governments showed no signs of cooling off. If the mortgage taxation bill was passed in New South Wales, and when the financial emergency bill became law federally, the standoff between Lang and Lyons would become a showdown. On the streets, the New Guard and the Labor Army might go to war to protect their sides as New South Wales descended deeper into bankruptcy. Billy Mackay's cops would be in the middle. Chaos was almost guaranteed, and civil violence was deeply feared. But one man found himself in a position that might put a stop to all of it. He didn't just have the means, because every public servant had that. Robert Henry Beardsmore also had the motivation. He was now the chief accountant in the Lands Department of New South Wales. On one hand, he had Lang's new circular, dated the 10th of May, which ordered him to pay any and all revenues in cash to the New South Wales Treasury. On the other hand, he had the Commonwealth of Australia Gazette, dated four days earlier, which ordered him to pay those same monies into the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, where they'd become federal funds. Robert Beardsmore had been a public servant in New South Wales since 1890. So, to who did he owe his loyalty? The State and the Premier? Or the Commonwealth and the Prime Minister? To the left or to the right? When Robert Beardsmore picked up his pen on the 11th of May 1932, how much did his personal and political beliefs come into play? 
In the next installment, we'll try to answer that question by looking at his life and times. The first dismissal, part two, the public servant who brought down the Premier, will be available early next week for Patreon supporters. The instalment will be released generally on podcast platforms next Friday. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode is based on contemporary newspaper articles found at the National Library of Australia's marvellous Trove database, and it's also based on family and public service records accessed via ancestry.com.au. Additionally, I've made use of military files and Attorney General's reports on the new guard found at the National Archives of Australia. This episode was also made possible thanks to Patreon support. While I already had Gerald Stone's book 1932, supporter contributions paid for second-hand copies of reference works that I tracked down over the past 12 months. These were Jack Lang's three memoirs, The Great Bust, The Turbulent Years, and I Remember. Also, Bethia Foote's Dismissal of a Premier, The Philip Game Papers, Beard Nan's The Big Fella, Jack Lang and the Australian Labor Party, 1891-1949, Eric Campbell's memoir, The Rallying Point, My Story of the New Guard, Lang and Socialism, A Study in the Great Depression by Robert Cooksey, and the collection of essays titled Jack Lang, which was edited by Heather Raddy and Peter Spirit. You can help me make Forgotten Australia for as little as the price of half a cup of coffee per month. Funds are used to ensure that no stones left unturned when I'm doing research, so that these episodes can really shine light on Forgotten Australia. To become a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. As a thank you, you'll get a show shout out, early ad-free access, bonus shows, and the audiobook Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten film star, Mary Maguire. I'd like to say sorry if I sound a little croaky during parts of this instalment. It's because I have, you guessed it, COVID. I've been pretty lucky though, and the symptoms haven't been particularly bad. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.